Hello, and welcome to Miss D's Lunacy. Today, I have the most amazing and unusual character I've ever met in my life. He's a fearless wonder with more lives than you can imagine. He should not be alive today, and yet he is. He was beaten, incarcerated, stabbed, and still survived. His journey to saving children is an epic story in itself. No one would believe it, and yet he's here to tell you his tale and amaze you. Please welcome the mayor of the Meatpacking District, Roberto Monticello. Thank you very much, Misty. You are very kind, and thank you for giving me a voice that uh, I hope uh, I hope is used for good purposes. That's what we do here. It's a pleasure to have you, and my show, and my listeners could listen to your fascinating life story, which began in Cuba, I believe. Yes, my family are European. My father was born in Italy my mother in Spain. My father's family fought against Mussolini. My mother's family fought against Franco. Oh my goodness. And they had to leave Spain and Italy and they went to Cuba. Eventually they met in Cuba and nine months and five hours later I was born. Oh God, you were on time. Well, I, I was wondering what were they doing for five hours? What was the delay? <laughs> no, no. I was premature. My son was premature. But you forgot to mention that your mother was a flamingo dancer. Yeah, my mother, flamenco, flamenco. A fabulous, yeah, fabulous. My, my mother was a flamenco dancer and my father was in the circus. So my mother and father were always touring when I grew up in Cuba. And then I stayed with my grandparents. And then at the in my my uh, mid-teens, 15, I was going to theater school. I wanted to be a playwright and theater director. That was my first intention. Before that, I was going to be a trapeze flyer. But the trapeze family, the flying Monticellos, uh, my grandfather decided that it was too, too many people died. I mean, I had a cousin, two cousins and an uncle die, and then my grandparents say, no, no more circus because I don't want to see my family die. In Europe, we have a tradition of not using a net. So that was a real problem. And two of them died in Lyons, and that's in Lyons, France, and that's when we were touring, and that's when my, my fa- grandfather said no more. No more. I don't blame him. Yeah. America has nets, but do they still not have nets in Europe? Pretty, it's a tradition. It's a tradition. In America, it's different. For example, the circus that my father started out with, the Parigi, we never even mentioned the idea of a net. Now, when, you know, Barnum and Bailey bought the Parigi, because the American circuses, the big ones, what they used to do is go to Europe and Latin America and buy the small circuses and at least buy the best acts, you know, the most uh, difficult acts. And then they would put a, a part of the circus in the United States. Amazing. You know, so when my father, you know, stopped flying, well, he I flew for about, a year and a half. Yeah, I mean, I was because I was the smallest ones are the flyers, the bigger per people are the catchers. You know what I mean? Because it's a matter of weight. Amazing. You know, and and when my when my father came to America soon after, you know, they sold the circus and 
And then what he did was he became a teacher of trapeze. And my mother kept traveling, you know, as a flamenco dancer. It's such a beautiful dance. It's it's so special. Yeah, my mother, that's all she did, day and night. But day it's very night. special. Yeah, and she always told me, you find your passion and you give it 100%, well, whatever I, your passion is. You have passion, my dear friend. So yeah. then you got in a bit of a fracas when you were 15 years old in Cuba because you were helping to protest, which mm. I understand because people were not always very happy about the communists and the yeah. movements and all that. And what happened was that you ended up, be, they were told, you were told that you were going to be in, in jail for five years and that you were going to cut sugarcane during the day. Well, it, I was a minor and also I was also, I had relatives that were big people in the Cuban government. And I was not necessarily against the government. I was against some parts of the government. Some I understand. Ideas of the government. So what happened was I was in in theater school and they round up the homosexuals. I wasn't gay. I'm, I'm the most straight person in the world. But my problem was that my friends were gay. So I organized a protest. Now, you did not do that in Cuba in 1978. Maybe, nope. maybe today you can get away with it. Yep, yep, but, yep. But in 78, you did not do that. And the Russians were still there, you know. I mean, you know, I mean, and it was a real tough government. So they arrested me and they said, uh, you know, because you're a minor and you, your family is, some of your family is part of the government, you know, you are gonna be just sent to a rehabilitation camp. Now, a rehabilitation camp, in the daytime, they take you to the fields to cut cane, and at night you go to school, right? And they tell you it will be for five years because you were the organizer, you were the, maybe you're 15, but you the, you were the ringleader of this, you know, you were the ones that brought the other students in. Good heavens. Yeah, I would like to say that my main concern was my freedom, you know, part, at that age, my main concern was, what, five years, no women? <laughs> Hello. <laughs> I, I couldn't see that, you know what I mean? So I decided I have to get out of here. So you so just what, walked off the field one day. Well, one day we were in the fields, and it was a, a very rural area. So I, I just took off and, and went into the mountains that were nearby because I'm from the other end of the island. You are? It's not Havana. It's, Santiago. it's Santiago and outside Santiago. And I asked somebody... What's the what's the distance between Havana and Santiago? They said New York to Palm Beach. I went, oh, it's huge. No, I don't think it's that much, but it's, it's far. It's, but I, but I, I was, you know, in that end of the island, and then what I did was I figured out how to get to Guantanamo, you know, which is a town. Guantanamo is a town not far from Santiago. It's true. I mean, so it took me four days to get there. You know what I mean? But I got to Guantanamo and I asked a relative. Now wait a second, you swam at mm. seven o'clock at night. No, with but a that tire. was that was later. When I got to Guantanamo, what I did was I contacted this friend of mine, friend of my cousin, and he told me you cannot go into the base, to, around the base because you know you the have mines. No, also the uh, crocodiles. With in Cuba, they call it caimans. So it's very dangerous, and uh, you, you know most people don't make it. Other people have tried, and they didn't make it. They found bodies, right? So they said the only way to get out of Cuba is to uh, swim into the base, and okay. they explained to me how to do it. And what I did was, uh, me and another guy, we got. 
truck tires. And well, as soon as it got dark, we some swam out. We were five miles off, you know, up the coast, and we swam out and let the current take you to the base. When you see the lights of the base, you let go of the tire and you swim in. And that's what I was in great physical condition. I was, you know, very strong kid uh, or teenager and that's and so we swam in and both of you made it both of us made it but that we understand three other people did not make it oh that's just most horrible so we got there and and uh, my friend when i go to miami because he had an uncle in miami and i said they asked me where do you want to go I said, no, I don't want to go to Miami. <laughs> I love it. It's yeah. like a hotel reservation. So I said, I want to. So I, I, I don't want to go there. I want to go somewhere else. I mean, I'm loving this story. It's like going to a travel agent. Like, no, I'm not really happy with this place. I want to go somewhere else. I mean, it was extraordinary that they accepted you, that you survived. You swam from 7 p.m. till 3 a.m. Yeah, you... I got to the base about 3:30. Oh know. my god! Yeah, I mean, I mean, being the dark, you know, I mean, you could see the the sharks, you know, running around, you know. Uh, oh. Yeah, it was a really. But you had to. I had to. The daughter spent five years in a rehabilitation camp, like what they call it, you know, for 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 teenagers that were antisocial. That's basically what the situation Good was. And then I got to the base, and I told him, no, I don't want to go to Miami. I mean, I have no connection to Miami or to Miami Cubans or whatever. Everybody wants to go to Miami because there's a whole Cuban. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, but not me. No, yeah, no, no, no. no. I, 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 I love was, it. You were like, eeny, meeny, miny, mo, And so you decided to go to Spain. No, I didn't decide. I asked him, you know, listen, I have family in Spain. I have family in Italy. Because my father was originally from Italy and my mother from Spain. So they said, okay, you have to wait a few days. So everybody left, you know, and I was the only one at the base. I was walking around the base for about four days. You know what I mean? You know, hanging around with the Marines that were there. Very nice people. Yeah, very, yeah, very nice people. You know what I mean? Like eating with them, you know, K-rations. travel vacation yeah, here. <laughs> yeah. And then finally, they, they put me on a plane to Tarragona, which is a military, U.S. military base in northern Spain. Wow. And, I, and I kept thinking, oh, I had to tell my parents. I had to tell but I didn't even know where they were because they were traveling. They were on tour. Well, how did right? you find them? But my grandparents knew about it. So my grandparents must have told them, my parents, he said, you know, he went to the base. So I eventually they put me on the plane to Tarragona. It was like eight days after I got there. And I got to Tarragona, which is in northern Spain. It's a military base. And when I got to Tarragona, I called my cousins in in Barcelona. I had uh, I'm talking about second cousins, third cousins. You know, I'm not talking about first cousins. And I called them up. I said, "I'm here." I said, "What are you doing here?" <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know. So, <laughs> so, so they they came to get me. They came to get me, and I said, it's "Well, just... you know, this is what happened." And then they informed my parents, you know, that I was in in Barcelona. You know, what I mean, that I had left Cuba. And it's I was amazing they didn't have a heart attack. I mean, uh, they didn't yeah. know what you were doing and where you were, and all of a sudden you show up at a military base. Yeah, well, they figured I was still at the rehabilitation camp. So they called my mother. My mother got in touch with my father, and and then they said, oh, he's here. He, he's in Barcelona. So I'm in Barcelona, you know, and I don't have, I didn't have a schooling. I never went to a school the normal way people go to school. I went to theater school, I mean, to learn how to write and direct plays and, and, and act and all that kind of stuff. And then when I got to Barcelona, I, one of my second cousins was involved with the theater company. And they said, oh, you can come and join us. 
So I joined the theater company. What a great idea. Now, also, you had to lie about your age, which I thought was really interesting, because there's mandatory military service in I, Cuba. No, I had lied before that. Yeah, I know, but you told yeah. them you were a different age. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And now uh, you have three passports, because, correct? Yeah, well, yeah. My mother, because, you know... Spanish? Yeah, Spanish. Cuban-American. Cuban, yeah. yeah, Which I mean, is extraordinary. Yeah. So I had lied about my age, and instead of 15 to 16... I was 21, five years later, to avoid the draft in case, you know, that was part of my plan. I mean, so when I got there... Not a bad I, plan. I looked a little older, and I was also very mature because I, I grew up very fast. I had to grow up very fast. That's I had right. no choice. So people believed I was 21, so they offered me a job with the theater company, and I started touring with them. And you know, Orlando Furioso. That was a play, an Italian play yeah. that we were doing, and we came to New York. We came to New York to do it, and and we performed at Bryant Park. Wonderful. Now Bryant Park was not Bryant Park today. <laughs> it was called Needle Park. It was I, it was a real bad park. I mean, very dangerous. But you know, there were police guarding us, and we were doing this play. You know this opposite, you know, epic play in, in Bryant Park. And we got associated with, the, with La Mama. La Mama is an experimental theater in the Lower East Side who were our sponsors because we need a big sculptures and all that kind of stuff. So we, we got Bryant Park to do it. So when I saw New York, I said, wait a second. <laughs> this is my other home. Unbelievable. You know, I saw New York. So I had a cousin, not a cousin, an uncle living in the village, they were living. He was living in the village, you know, right by the meatpacking. So I, I got in touch with him, and he said, "Well, if you want to stay here, we can arrange it because Cuban had a special situation about staying in, in the United States." You know what I mean? I thought, well, you know, I can prove that I was at the base that I came out to the naval base, which is American territory, Guantanamo, and then uh, he made the arrangements, and he said, "Listen, I have a." a two-bedroom right in front of uh, Abingdon Square, 15 Abingdon Square. And I forget that day. That was my first place. So I landed there, and I said, I'm staying in America. And that was it. It's extraordinary. But first of mm. all, you did the theater group in uh, Spain for about a year and a half or two years. Uh, close to it, yeah. Yes, yeah. before yeah. you got into this play, yeah. which then brought you to the United States, and you said, I'm going to stay here because I've got a really nice T.O. called Absolutely. Uncle. Absolutely. And then I um, I got to New York, and uh, by that time I was officially 22, even if I was only 18. You know, I mean, because you know, the change of I gave myself five more years, right? So I I'm in New York and and the village, and I love the village. I love because it was very artistic at the time. You know, there was a lot of people in theater and film, everything else. So I said, this is home. This is it. So I told my uncle, listen, I want to stay here. I said, well, when I, you know, you have to work, you know, everything else, you know, and then eventually I got my apartment even closer to, right in the middle of the meatpacking practically on Hudson Street. I never left the area. It's absolutely wonderful. And if ever you need a tour, you need to talk to Roberto because he knows everything. Yeah. Now, what was amazing is that you became a member of the Amnesty International. And they, mm -hmm. it was a human rights organization. And because of your youth, you were able to join this group because you were so young. And they started sending you on these adventures that are just about mind-boggling. 
about going to South America and chasing Nazi criminals. Can you talk about that? Uh, yeah. When, um, when I was in Cuba, when I was arrested, I became what Amnesty International calls a prisoner of conscience because I was a teenager. You know, basically, you know. And then they put me down, they had me down as the a prisoner of conscience. So when I came out and I came to New York, I contacted them. They had an office on 58th Street. I contacted them and said, I'm here, you know, and I'm out of Cuba, and I went to Spain, and I came here, and, I, you know, I was traveling all over, Euro- all over Europe and then came to New York. And then when I um, contacted them, they said, well, if you want to work with us, I mean, you know, you are welcome because we can get your job. Now, I'm not one of those people that can sit in an office and stuff envelopes or whatever. <laughs> so I told them, listen, I, I'm not good at that kind of work, you know. And also, I wanted to write and direct. Either, you know, at the time I was thinking about film already. Because you were trained to do that. Yeah, I mean, I was trained to do theater, but, you know, but I, I wanted to do film, you know. And, and they told me, well, you can freelance with us. And I said, yeah, but I want to be on the field. I don't want to be, I don't want to be in an office, you know. And they told me, okay, you speak Spanish. We can send you to Latin America. We have this group that we're investigating human rights abuses by former war criminals from from Germany. So they sent me to Latin America. So my, my job was to track down these war criminals. Now you become a detective. Uh, of sorts, yeah. Part of my job was also, because I, I, I was young, it was try, try to befriend the sons and daughters of these people to find out exactly what their real name was. What their real name, you know, because they had changed their names, many of them, you know. So I was in Bolivia, I was in Paraguay, I was in Brazil, and I had an obsession after a while with finding Joseph Mengele. And, and, you know, that was my thing. I mean, if I find that man, I'd be able to understand what evil is. Because, I mean, I, I couldn't understand how anybody could do the things they did. I mean, I was like, it's unbelievable that they could, especially Mangala. And and there was in South America. Never got to find him. I never found him. You found I, 18. 18, yeah. 18 of them. Well, that's tremendous. And I was able to discover exactly what the names were and so on. And I would give it to different, uh, you know, organizations that were tracking them down. Including, there was a Mossad, um, an Israeli organization down there. I, I would give them tips all the time about this thing. So you met these people. I mean, you are really clever. Yeah. Uh, it, interesting enough, the sons and daughters were always completely in denial. Oh, that never happened. My father would never do this. Or my grandfather, whatever. You know what I mean? I, he would never do something like this. Oh, my God, no, no, no. I mean, that never happened. Also, not that many Jews got killed. And I would stand there and just say, you know, and pretend that I was, you know, okay, you know, you know. And then, so what's your real name again? And then I would find out, and then I would, I would hand How them. How clever. Know, yeah. yeah. But they would say things like you wouldn't believe. They would deny completely that there was a Holocaust. It, it was complete denial. I mean, of course, it's their mothers and fathers, you know. So, so you can't um, think the worst of them, of course. I guess, you know. I mean, but I mean, they were completely in denial. No, my mother. What do you mean? Your father was, a, you know, was one of the guards at the concentration camp. Well, he killed people. Yeah, I mean, you know, what do you think he was doing in the concentration yeah, camp? Smoking you know, cigarettes. You know, and all yeah, so. exactly. Uh, 
It's a very difficult thing to face. Yeah, yeah, face. I mean, but I, I knew. I mean, because you know, I had the information. It's so amazing. Yeah. How impressive. I have devoted my life yes, to, to human rights and disaster relief. That's that's my life. If I don't do something that makes a difference in the world, I don't do it. That's the way I think about my life. For better, for worse. I know I'm very weird, you know. You You're know. not weird. You're just as kind as could be. Well, and it's a privilege yeah. to have you yeah. here because oh, not everybody you. cares, and nobody seems to understand the foibles of what you've gone through, the stabbings, the incarceration, yeah, the beating. Later, Where yeah. did these things? Ha I mean, they happen everywhere you went. Well, I was then I started freelancing with different human rights groups and different disaster relief organizations, all the way from America's Watch to the International Red Cross, and I would be going in missions to different places. You know, as a troubleshooter, right, so you went my title was troubleshooter. Troubleshooter. But, yeah, but I, I was a, a, a freelancer because I never wanted to work full time because my thing was to first to make do plays and then to do films. So I could not work full time because I had another career. So, so you I, somehow were, was able to yeah. balance all of these. So yeah. the Red Cross sent you to Ethiopia. Ethiopia. Yeah. I went with oh the, my God! And for that, saving children and feeding them. Yeah, that was you in the famine. They had these camps there. I mean, it was really bad. I mean, because they were dying right in front of you. People were dying right in front of you. And there were so many kids. I don't know how that... All I can think of is their parents die <gasps> in the Civil War and because there were kids everywhere. And many of them were in real bad shape. And the problem that we had is we didn't have enough medicine. We didn't have enough... And uh, the people that were running the camps started having neighbors breakdowns. And I, at one point, they put me in charge of one of the camps. How did you have the fortitude to be able to see this horror and 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 survive it? I guess I had to. Uh, I mean, I wasn't the only one. You have to understand. There were dozens of people doing that. And later on, I worked with Doctor Without Borders, which these people are real. I mean, are real because, for example, now I I go every six, seven weeks to Syria to deliver medicine. And I spent four or five days there from hell. But there are people that stay there the whole time. These are the real people. I mean, these people are there the whole time. I go I go now and I bring medicine to the uh, camps, you know, the refugee camps, and then I go back in six, seven weeks and they're still there. So these people are really- But Syria are not our allies. No, it's the refugee camps, you know, from the from the war I near the border with with uh, Turkey, near Aleppo, the whole area, Aleppo and Homs on the other side. That's where I go, and uh, we we have a mission. We go from here, from the from the uh, La Guardia. We have two planes full of medicine, and and it, we run out right away. It's, in no time, we give everything out, and we don't do anything. It seems like we. You give, you know, you bring all this stuff there, and it doesn't gone. last long. No. The fortitude, the strength that you have to save people—it's so extraordinary. Again, I'm not the only one. I mean, you I know, know I but mean, I've never yeah. met people that have actually not been traumatized by these sort of things. It's hard. It's been very hard. But I, I, at one point, I learned I, when, I, when I was in Ethiopia, I had to become hardened in a way. And I said, I would say to myself, because I was in charge and people were looking at me, what do we do now? 
right? I was the youngest one always, but but I was in charge. And and, and they would say, well, what do we do? I mean, because, you know, we have 500 people here basically dying. And and at one point I had to say, you save the ones that can be saved. Survival of the fittest. Yeah. And that was the hardest part because you feel like you're playing God. You know, you're playing God. I mean, you're choosing who's going to live and die. You're basically the strongest ones is the ones you help. The other ones you have to, what can you do? Because, I mean, you don't have enough for everybody. No, it's, it's you tough. You were there three times in three Ethiopia. Times. You were in Afghanistan for two months. Yeah, that was you in the, uh, uh, at the end you of the... You went to uh, Syria. You did, uh, it's extraordinary that you are such a kind human being that you continue to this day to help people in need. I commend you very much. Mm. Oh, thank you, thank you very much, Misty. But I mean, I mean, like I said, all the people do it and they do it full time. I do it part time. I do it for two months, three months, whatever, and then I come back to New York and go dancing. <laughs> you know, you know what I mean. I mean, it's, it's enough to. So, but I mean, there's people that are there all the time, and these people, I mean, they really are unbelievable. So, and, talking you know, about another tragedy. You know, which I hate to bring up, but anyway, you happen to have been filming mm. at 9-11. You were wrapping work on psychopathist sexuals. Yeah, it, sexualis, sexualis. Sexualis. Yeah, it was going to be a short film about the about Wall Street and the Wall Street people and their affairs and all that kind of thing. Normally, I, I go to these places when there's a disaster, you know what I mean, to help out. But this is one time when it happened to me, yeah. Because I was a, a block away, you know, from from there. So I you w- were waiting for your gaffer in your trailer. No, we were waiting for uh, nine o'clock. Yeah. In the morning, when everybody goes into Wall Street to film down the canyons That's of correct. Wall Street, because that, it's like a canyon of Wall Street, and then we're waiting for nine o'clock. It was like a twenty to nine in the morning. We're standing there. I was standing there with the coffee and the half a croissant, waiting for nine o'clock so we can go and film and send two of my actors down the canyon, uh, the couple that was playing the main lead you know, in, the, in, the, in the little film, and I would send them down and then we film all with the great light they have in the morning, a great light over, over in Wall Street. And then I'm there and, and my gaffer says, Roberto, that plane is so low. I said, what plane? And then I hear, boom, I look up, and the, the plane had just crashed into the first tower. Uh, when I say the first tower, I mean the north tower. And I say, oh, my God. I mean, everybody was like, everybody standing around, you know. And then I said, well, this is something. Uh, but I'm a trained paramedic, and my gaffer was a trained paramedic. So we said, okay, we have to stop the filming, and we have to help. So I called the Red Cross office. And I said, listen, I'm here. What do I do? I said, well, wait there, and we're going to have a truck down. And two trucks came down, actually, not one. And and two trucks came down, oh. and then we on the truck. But I, I never expected the towers to fall. What people kept talking about was, well, you know, at the Empire State, uh, 40 years ago, somebody crashed a plane. It was a crazy person or something that crashed a, a plane. Uh, but my paramedic that has seen the plane, he kept saying to me, Roberto, this was a big plane. This was not a, a little plane. 
And I said, what do you mean? It's, it's a big plane. I said, yeah, it was like a passenger plane, like the planes at the airport. Oh. I said, oh, my God. I mean, so how did it came here, come here and land? And sure enough, soon enough, we see the other plane go. I said, oh, this is you know probably the Air Force checking the whole thing. No, the second plane went around, went around, you know, took a turn and landed in the second tower. And then that's what we knew. This was big. I didn't know how big or what it was. And that's when I said, okay, everybody go home. And I stayed there. I mean, a paramedic stayed there with me the first day. You and were there four days with a mask. Thank day. God you yeah. had a mask. Yeah. I mean, I, for some reason, for some sixth sense or something, when the Red Cross gave me the mask, I, I put it on and I didn't take it off. I would have sleep with the mask on. You're on the right. truck, we were sleeping were on the right. truck. Yeah, you were right. uh, yeah, but I, di- I, I didn't know what I was doing. That sometimes a couple of people asked me, "Let me see your face," and I will show it and put it back on. But for some reason, I kept the mask on, and I don't know why. Well, it was very good common sense because yeah. of the asbestos and all the things. But yeah. what's so tragic is that you were trying to save people and you were not able to do so. That's true. Uh, That's I, I, really. It, it was very tra- frustrating because the first. Hours, you know, the first day. Chaos, that was, it chaos. wasn't a Tuesday. Yeah. It was a Tuesday morning. The first day, practically, all we did was get people out of the area. That's right. My job was to get people from the first tower, especially, up Fulton Street toward the Brooklyn Bridge. That's right. And that's what we were doing. We had the, the whole you know, Red Cross vest, the vest jacket. And we were getting people keep moving. And I got to say, as we kept getting people toward the Broken Bridge, yes. there were firemen going in. Uh, and they were loaded. They had these this things on the shoulders, you know, big loaded. And we were getting people out, and the firemen were going in. And uh, some of them never made it out. Uh, yeah. yeah. Apparently, a lot of them didn't make it. Yeah. I know. My yeah. neighbor's yeah. husband yeah. never made it. He was about 25 years old. It was just so tragic. There's so many people that were touched by this event that it is just absolutely yeah. and, awful, and, and, and I it, don't want to dwell on all of this because yeah. it's just enough to make you cry. But how again and, courageous of you to try? No, to help. my idea was as a paramedic, maybe I can help somebody. I can, you know, save a life, or maybe at least you know help somebody recover from, you know, but not one. I, I didn't do anything except except move people. And the next three days, because my gaffer left. Then the next three days, I was just picking to the rubble, finding pieces of bodies. <gasps> I, di- I didn't get I didn't get to save a single life, and that was that was yeah. I felt very had, frustrated. You had so many tragedies that you dealt with. You're so strong in character. I mean, swimming yeah. for seven hours to make it to Guantanamo Bay, then to go to Ethiopia and South America and Afghanistan. I mean, it's extraordinary, the kindness in your heart and the fact that you survived it all is amazing and a compliment to you. Oh, uh, thank you very much. This is a nice way of putting it. Remember, I'm not the only one at all. <laughs> I mean, it's No, but you're this. the one sitting in my chair, and you're the one oh, that I really okay. Okay. am really proud of. I mean, if I could interview every single person yeah. that helped every single person, I would yeah. give them a hug. Yeah, somebody, somebody wrote a book, Swimming to Guantanamo. His name is Jim Ryerson. I don't know if the book is in print still about me swimming into Guantanamo. And people say, oh, my God, you did incredible. You swam into Guantanamo. Listen, if I didn't swim in, 
right? I would be in Haiti or, or, or God knows where because the current was taking you down. And that's why the other people died. Probably. But because you were so young and so strong, you were able to to go against the tide. Or? Yeah, it was. It well, yeah, it was sideways across the tide. The tide. Yeah. Did you um, see the Cuban bo boats? Did you see the American boats? I saw boats in the different in the distance, but I didn't oh. know it, it was night. You know, it was very dark, and I and what I could see was the sky, and I, and then I saw the lights of the base. When I saw the lights of the base, that's when you. You let go of the tire and you're swimming. I swam as hard as I could, and I made it. I made it. Uh, and your friend was with you. Yeah, yeah. The, both of you together. So you yeah, had. Yeah, he made it after me. I told okay. when I got there, you know what I mean. They they fished me out of the water, and I said, no, no, my friend is back there. So they send a boat with the light, you know what I mean, to look for him. And sure enough, he was still hanging onto the tire. That's why he didn't. He didn't. It took him so long to get in, but he was going. Because the tide is so strong. That part of Cuba, you know, the water, the ocean in front of that part of Cuba is yeah. very deep. There's a big hole there. It's between Cuba and Jamaica on one side, and to, the, and to the, my left here, it would be Haiti. You know, that's, you, so you know, I think, oh my God, you know. But if you get taken away by the, by the current, I don't know what happens to you. Other people did not make it. Even my my friend in Guantanamo in, in in the in the town told me, Roberto, you better swim very hard because people don't make it always. Aye, aye, aye. But I, I was not the only one that made it. I mean, my friend made it, uh, and also they had told me in the base that there were other cases that had made it there. It's incredible. But uh, of course, only I would say two in five make it. You know, because you have to really. Lucky for me, I was very strong. And very fit yeah. and young. Yeah, and I had been working out like hell. I mean, cutting cane is a hell of a workout. I so I've been cutting cane for three and a half months, you know. So you know, so I, I was in real good shape, and that's what got me through. But others did not make it different. Yeah. It's so sad. But in the meantime, mm -hmm. with your humanitarian efforts, you were working on your movies which was yeah. wonderful in all of your beautiful projects. Well, I try to do films, whatever it's feature films or documentaries that make a difference in the world. Now I get hired a lot by different groups, different human rights groups, for example, to film, you know, to go there and do a, a film, you know, something, you know. I mean, I work for the RGC, or CNN, I mean, several others, too, you know, uh, just doing a, a small documentaries about situations like this. Now, one movie that like you series, did, yeah. well, first of all, you got a humanitarian award, by the way, for mm -hmm. your work in Darfur, Cuba, Serbia, Rwanda, and Sri Lanka, mm -hmm. and you won this beautiful award. But you did a movie with uh, for about La Lupe, and that's quite exciting. Yeah, so let's talk the, about it, because you were, as a kid, going over there, and I mean, she was a bit of a nutty woman, right? right? Actually, I did a, a, a short yes. version of La Lupe, and I wanted to do a, a big feature film. I still want to do it. I have a script. That I write the scripts too. I mean, and haven't done the big one yet. Explain but, to Americans no. what, who La Lupe is. She was a very famous singer in Cuba, in and Cuba. she was a black woman who was absolutely as wild as wild could be. And when you were a child, you couldn't wait to go see her because she was so eccentric. And bizarre, but so go ahead, tell a story. It's quite fascinating. Well, when I was a kid, when you're a kid, you want to 
see the not normal. I'm not going to call it abnormal. <laughs> the not normal. And she was um, she was a woman way ahead of her time. Yep. I mean, she was like a Madonna at the beginning. But 20 years before, or 25 years before, in Latin countries, where they have a whole thing about the women are this way, the men are this way, you know, machismo and the whole thing. So she was really really a pioneer and basically she will go on the space uh, on the stage and be very wild and very sexual and that did not happen not only in america didn't happen in latin countries then no it didn't so so when i was a kid i mean to me i mean you know i in santiago because she's from santiago that's my hometown yeah the other end of the island the well like, what the other end of the island is the caribbean side uh, Havana is the European side, right. so uh, when I, you know I would I would escape from my apartment, you know, from my, from my, where I was living with my grandparents mostly because my mother and father was touring, you know, and and I would go and and oh my God, we go to the Vervenas, which was like a street party, and there was La Lupe, and the whole thing was to go see La Lupe, go see La Lupe, because <laughs> she was she was such a wild woman, she would grab herself, in, I mean. That was unheard of, you know, not, not only in Latin America, but in in the United States. Remember, this is like 25 years before Madonna. I mean, you know, you know, you know. So this was like a, to me was like big thing. So years, many years later, when I was in New York, she was living here. She was living wow. in the Bronx, in Mud Heaven. They actually named a street after her. So I would go see her. I would go there to see her, and we hit it off because we were both from Santiago. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, we we would talk about Santiago. Oh my God, you know, our hometown. La historia. Yeah, la historia de Santiago. You know, Papa. You know, and we talk. You know, so we hit it off very well. And I would try to give her money as much as I could. Oh. I mean, I mean, I mean, we tried. You know, I didn't have that much, but whatever I had, I tried to share with her. I would give her money here. How and did there. she get out of Cuba? She she left normally. She went to perform in Mexico and never went back. Oh. You know, the revolution, especially at the beginning, yeah. it was on top of everything. It was also very Puritan. Yes, it was very Puritan. I mean, you know, people did not do. You know, later on, you know, Cuba became oh my God. You know, like it is now. You know, but I mean, at the time, it was very and 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 her act was not wanted there. You know, what I mean, because she was, she was like a. a, a a poor people's Celia Cruz. She was, I mean, really wild. Let's too much. Way, you know, I, too I don't much. want to go into details because you no, know. No, 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 no. I, I mean, but, but you know, she was. But yeah. that's amazing. This yeah. movie and it, it is. Has it been in production and finished, or is it just? No, just... I haven't done it yet. The big one. No, but the little I, one. I, the little one, yes. I, I have uh, shown it around. I even did a documentary about Carnaval in Santiago because in Cuba. They have a great carnival, but it's in the other end of the island, in Santiago. In Havana, no. You know, you know, Havana, the carnival is nothing. You know what I mean? But I mean, in Santiago, they have this great carnival. You know, Carnaval de Oriente, you know what I mean? Which is a big thing, you know, because everybody goes to the Carnaval Oriente. It's what Rio was 40 years ago before, wow. before it became controlled. You know what I mean? I mean, you know, the police leave and everybody goes in the streets and it's just a wild incredible party that they have a real carnival in Santiago, right? And so I made a documentary about it. I included her on that, too. Now, my main problem making 
what you call scripted films, because, or because I would say documentaries. Yes, I've done three documentaries in Cuba. Out of my 29 films, I've done 29 films. Uh, my, I've done three documentaries in Cuba, but I haven't been able to do a scripted film because American companies cannot do, back me up. That's right, because, because we have the embargo. Yeah, we have an economic embargo which I don't think it helps. I think it, is, it makes it much worse, and it does not affect the Cuban government. It affects the Cuban people. That's so true. I was being against it. Yes, I want some change in Cuba, but I, I don't want it. I don't want to strangle the poor people there in order to get I know. It. Now, what was a mer- miracle for you, again, mm-hmm. yeah. was that you were able to go back to Cuba having defected, in essence, and you were able to do so in 1990 because of this NBC Lady called Mary yeah. Mary. Yeah, what happened was the Russians were talking about leaving. That was uh, when the uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union. And then I knew some people that were, you know, reporters, you know, journalists. And they told me, oh, you know, NBC is going to send a group there. And I said, oh, okay. Well, you know, uh, so I talked to them, you know, I said, you know, I'll give you advice. And, and one of the reporters told me, oh, well, Mary Mary, is the, Mary, Mary stayed in Cuba for many years after the running the NBC wow. at the Hotel National. But uh, there was another report, I can't remember his name, uh, he was a guy. He said, oh, Roberto, why don't you come with us? Because we can get you to come, uh, uh, expenses paid. Because, you know, we're going to need somebody that knows Cuba, you know, to, to go there, you know, and report on the exit of the uh, Soviet Union and so on. I said, well, listen, I left illegally. Uh-huh. I, I actually escaped from, from prison and escaped to Guantanamo. And, and they said, okay, well, we, we're going to submit your name anyway. Well, amazing. lo and behold, uh, less than a month later, I get the okay to That's go back. Amazing. You know, I mean, later I found out that the reason they had given me the okay was two things. One, you were so young. I was so young. I was a teenager. So I was not responsible for my actions or whatever. I had not done what they call a violent crime against the government, you know, a revolt or t- you know taking guns or whatever. So I mean, I mean, and third, because I had family in the government that I mean, far away family, but still family in the government that has vouched that I was not a, a counter-revolutionary per se, that I was just nuts. You rebellious. Know, I, I, rebellious, yeah. I was just nuts, <laughs> and I was always very precocious and all that kind of thing. So they, they let me back in. So I started going back in 1990. It's unbelievable. In 1990. I saw the Russians leave Cuba. I sat down at the Avenida del Puerto, which is the port. Yes, the I've port. been to there, were, there was, you know, benches. I was at the benches watching the Russians, you know, uh, you know, going um, out the boat, saying goodbye to them. Hi, bye, bye. And the Russians leaving. Um, I something, yeah. And yeah. you go back all the time. Yeah, I've been trying to bring help there. For especially at the beginning, after the when the special period, they didn't have any food, any. So I would bring no medicines. I would collect medicine in the tri-state yes, area. Right. I would call doctors. I would contact Cuban doctors, and I would they would give me the extra. And when I had enough medicine, I would take it by U-Haul to Tampa. I had a friend that had a boat, wow. and we would go from Tampa to Santiago, my hometown, wow. to the same hospital where I was born. And, oh we will, and we will bring the medicine there. I uh, went as a humanitarian yeah. facility as well. We yeah. had to bring 10 pounds of medicine, right. pencils, equipment, diapers, uh, anything. Because when you walk into a, 
pharmacy in Cuba, they don't have anything. Yeah, we and, were we were bringing a boatload. I mean, a boatload that you know, if you put another box, it would sink. I mean, <laughs> I mean, you know, I mean. So we were bringing, you know, to how to, brave to, of you. Not brave. I had to help people there. I would think that if if it was the other way around, I would do it. And I would get there, and I would uh, we get to Santiago. We would call the uh, the uh, the hospital and say, "I'm here." And they'd bring a truck, and you just oh, immediately they come over, you know. And then I would go to the hospital with them. When the nurses and the doctor would see me, they would cry because Aww. they didn't have any medicine. I mean, so I would bring mostly antibiotics, but yes. I would bring a soap. I would bring everything that they could. They, they didn't, didn't have anything. They didn't have anything. And that's when they, a lot of people took off on a raft. And ended up in Guantanamo. Remember that raft exodus? That was because there was nothing there. There was no food. There was nothing. There was a special period. And then what the government did, they opened up tourism or partial tourism to be able to survive there. Well, but, the Germans yeah. and, the, and, and the Canadians really loved to go there. Yeah, exactly. So they started going down, and then there would be some money coming in. But I mean, there was a period there. This they call it the special period when there was nothing, mm-hmm. nothing. You know what I mean? In Havana, I would go to, I, I, you know, I would go to the hotels that didn't have food. I would ask them, well, you know, come tomorrow. We're gonna have rice and beans in the afternoon, and I, you know, to get the, and I would get as many as I can to as many people as I could. So I mean, but Good for uh, you. but I did eleven trips with medicine to Santiago. Fantastic. By boat, you know. And you save people. Now, all of your projects are still in the making of your films, even though you have time to save people, which I don't know how you have time to even sit down for two minutes. And one of them was an ongoing project called Children of the Night, which was an amazing trafficking. It made me so sad. Trafficking of children from Cambodia, Malaysia, and the Philippines to the U.S. They We're also from they all, yeah yeah, but they're also from Central America, yeah. Brazil. I mean, they're actually more from Central America than any. I would say in general, because changes every month. The way it happened was I made a film in Tanzania, in Africa, yes. about human trafficking, and then I made another one in Western Europe, mostly in England about you know eastern european young women being brought from the east to the west to be prostitution you know t- young teenagers mostly in new york i came back to new york and this guy richard i cannot mention his name because you know but uh, richard uh contacted me and said roberto you know we have tremendous amount of human trafficking now of children of oh children, lord of children in the tri-state area meaning new york Connecticut and Jersey, and and he said, and and it's big, and it's still. I in my mind, he was talking about twenty, thirty, forty. That's what I thought when you told me the story. You said no, "No, they're four and five and six years old. Yes, somebody. But I mean, also they they are in the hundreds. Uh, There used to be a time where the pedophile would have to go to, let's say, Thailand, Phuket, to pick a, a kid. And sometimes they were able to bring them in, they adopt them there, and they bring them in or whatever. Now traffickers are bringing, are bringing, you know, uh, you know, kids by the dozens, uh, sometimes you know, probably hundreds, into the United States. How can they get away with that? 
they have fake religious organizations, oh. so they do adoption in other countries. They can oh. go to an orphanage, for example, in Pompeii, and in the capital of Cambodia, and they can actually say, well, I... We're here to adopt some children, you know what I mean? And and because they have the adoption papers already, oh. they... I cannot give you the details because... No, I mean, no, it I, makes I will, sense, yeah. it makes sense. And, uh, any more details than that, but they bring them in and then they're being sold here. And also there's a big organ. black market for children. And organ donors. Yeah, organ, yeah. No, so, they're, they're not donors. I mean, basically... They no, bring, they kill them. They bring the children in. In the, in the United States, you have like... The last figure I got was 18,722 kids waiting for transplants, you know, in in, uh, children's hospitals. Now, many of them die waiting for, on the waiting list. True. You know, they are in different, you know, in different different states, different cities, right? Many of them die because children don't die. And the few that die do not donate their organs. So where are the organs going to come from? So if you have parents, you have a kid, you have to go into the black market and pay money for the organs. Now, the organs, where do they grow? They grow in Center Park? No. They have to be other children. Now, where are the children? That's all I can give you right now onto the documentary. I understand, but you saved 127 children. So far, we rescued 127, yeah. Bravo. Yeah, but that's nothing. That's the tip of the iceberg. I understand, but it's better than nothing. And that's well, what I, yeah. I, I mean, mean, you have saved children in so many countries and you have made them survive. It's amazing that they don't even understand. There was a movie that was, there was a show on television about a man yeah. who had no idea that all the people in the theater were the, the families that he had saved. He had saved all these German families yeah. and these children and brought them all to the United States and then London. So they made him get up and they said, turn around and look at all the people that he had saved were in the theater. He had no idea. It was all about him, and he had oh. saved all their parents so that they could survive and live, and it was the most touching moment. And this man started crying because he hadn't realized that his efforts, just like yours, saved hundreds of people, which then were able to produce their children and their grandchildren, and they were all there for him. He had no idea that he was sitting next to people that he'd saved when they were tiny, tiny little children, and he'd brought them all over to the country, yeah. very similar just to what you're doing. Uh, yeah, I, I, the problem is you, you don't think about the ones you save. You think about the ones you did you, not save. Well, that's... And you know that it's much more than that. Well, I also, I'm not the only one. I have a team of five. We are five, me and four more. And, and and we go and and do the rescue. You know, we 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 go. Feel, we pretend. Two of my guys pretend they are pedophiles out to to buy kids, wow. and that's how we get the information of where to go and what to do. And then well, and then when we go there, we we not only film as much as we can, but we also try to we tell we tell them we're taking the children children with us, and we tell them that we are from the authorities or whatever you know we are, you know I mean that the FBI is with Sounds us. Sounds good to be. Yeah, I mean they buy it many times. You know. Now you yeah. have another movie called The World's Crying, mm-hmm. which is a montage of footage. In Darfur, Rwanda, Africa during the genocides, right. Sri Lanka during the tsunami, Sarajevo, Serbia during the ethnic cleansing, and the New Orleans during the Katrina event, right. Right. which is amazing. Then you did something really cool called Carnival de Cuba, which we were talking about yeah, earlier. Yeah, we were talking about it before, yeah. 
And then, of course, we were worried about the embargo. And uh, you did a movie with Native Americans, which is also very fascinating, because the producer was Marlon Brando, who was very much right a, a person of great interest with the American Indians and the way we had treated them, which was, yeah. of course, terrible. Brando uh, was, I mean, he was kind of crazy, you know. I mean, but he was a good man. Yeah. And he put his money and his time in what it is. What he did, he hired four different directors. Like, you know, in my case, I was going to be director, producer. And my part of the country would be the Northeast. Long so, Island. Long, well, Long Island, yeah. They have, you know, the uh, reserv Indian reservations there. Yes. Which is very interesting because the Indian have mixed with black people. So they are very dark. <laughs> they are really like almost black, you know. Um, but that was my area, and Brando was, was you know, funding everything from his pocket, and he didn't have to. So you got to give him a lot of credit for that. And but then, the the problem was in the middle of the whole thing when we already had done like forty percent of the film, and so on. I mean, I was filming in Long Island. I was filming in Nantucket. I was filming. He died. He just died. One day I get a call from his son, Miko, one of his sons, and he said, my father just went to the hospital. He didn't make it. I mean, and so then I told me, well, what do I do with, because he had, I mean, I got the money in advance. I said, you know, I said, well, hold on until we figure out how the family reacts to this. But he had like eight children. I mean, so everybody started, you know, and the whole thing, and it became a legal thing, and and the film never got finished. And when it comes to the world is crying, what I've been doing is I've been hired several times to go to places like you know New Orleans, Syria, Afghanistan to film, and I've done short films. And I was putting, gonna put it together into one big film. I have to. That's one of the projects I've been. I'm working on steadily to get there. I so how could people sort of help you with this? Is there? Do we go to your website? Yeah, I mean, if anybody wants to see, I don't know what can I tell you. Um, uh, one specific, yeah, they can get in touch, or they can. Um, if one of them wants to work with me, one of my films, you know, I have films yes. about about a homeless woman in New York. Yes, I have uh, scripts that I read them myself because I write. I'm a compulsive writer too, on top of everything. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I have to write all the time. So I read a number of scripts, and they it all probably soothes your soul. They all have social, you know, they all have something to say. You so know, how could we reach you, and how could we have donations sent to you? Oh, I, I really don't take money. It doesn't matter. You know, I mean, I don't take money. I mean, thank you very much for that. But I, I if somebody wants to work with me in yes. one of my projects, that's how one thing. How do they thing. find you? Oh, there's a phone number and that I have that which is kind of open. It's in my website, Good. and there's also an email in my card or whatever. You know, what I mean, my phone number is nine one seven six six one one six two six, and also have a website. And if you Google Roberto Monticello, I have, a, I mean, a bunch of websites. Okay, you know so it's spelled M-O-N-T-I-C-E-L-L-O. -L -L -O. Exactly, yeah, yeah. All right, now, I don't want to close because there's so much going on here, but I do want to get with the wonderful, wonderful story about why you're called the mayor of the Meatpacking District. And you're <laughs> always wearing a red hat. Yeah. This is quite well, sensational. I, I, I always wore hats since I was a kid, 
I have hair, though. You know, I yeah. never said you didn't. Yeah, yeah. I just <laughs> think the red hat but, is... No, but people think I always wear a hat because I'm bold, you know. I but only I, spent one hour with you and four people called you the mayor, and I was just in one area, and they kept going, hello, mayor, hello, mayor. And okay. Everybody knows him as the mayor of... Uh, of the meatpacking district. So now you're going to tell us the story about the Florent restaurant and all that because I think it's so oh, you beautiful. Want, you want to hear about that? Okay. Oh, yes, uh, we do. Well, I I never left the village by the meatpacking because, you know, the meatpacking, the real meatpacking is from Gansevoort to 14 and nobody actually lives there. It's a commercial area. But I've always been in that area since 1980. Right? I mean, if, uh, when I came to New York in 78, it was uh, what you might call uh, I started kind of living here. I was living in Soho. When I, every time I would come to New York, it would be in Soho from 78 to 80. And 80, I moved to, you know, 15 Avenue Square for good. And, and that was it. I was in, in the meatpacking area. And I would come to the meatpacking. I've been in the meatpacking forever. <laughs> and at one time, I was at this famous diner. I was famous because they even made a movie of it or something. And I'm at this diner and I forget it was April 19, you know, uh, 1992. I'm there and I was breaking up with my French girlfriend, you know what I mean? La you petite amie. Oh, my wish, you know. You know <laughs> it was she, a bit of a disaster. Uh, well, yeah, she didn't want to break up. Uh, and I felt really bad about it. And, and Florent, that was the name of the diner, Florent. And Florent was the one of the really pioneers there. That's true. And then, so he came to sit with me because he saw the situation and the whole thing and other people came and sat down because they knew me, you know, so on. And uh, this film crew from NYU walks in. <laughs> right? And they yeah. and they go to Ferrand. Oh, you are Ferrand. Because at that time, the area was another world, another world to what is now. I mean, completely... It was dangerous. It was really oh, Ferrand, you Ferrand, you know. I mean, you are like the mayor, and and Ferrand said, no, 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 <laughs> the, the mayor is Roberto, because I lived and work here, I lived and work in the meat packing, and Ferrand had the diner there, <laughs> but he lived on Crosby Street, which is Soho, you know what I mean? I mean, so he 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 was the one that nominated me the mayor, and then since then people started calling me the mayor. I mean, so people come to the meat packing and say, "Where's the mayor?" You know, <laughs> I think you know and they uh, they've been calling me the mayor of the meat packing forever. You know what I mean? And everybody can recognize you because of your great red hat, which yeah. I think is what you're going to need a few more. Yeah, I'm going to buy you about twelve of them and send them to you. <laughs> oh, you never know. You could have another different rim or something, you know, different bandeau or something. Yeah, well, I, I do have a couple of whites and black. You know, uh, yeah, but the, I still yeah. like the red on Yeah, you. red. Yeah, <laughs> red is my kind of a, a little bit of a trademark. Well, you just give me your size of your head, and I'm going to have a whole bunch of hats. <laughs> oh, thank you very much. And they're very good for Christmas, by the way, and yeah, Valentine's. Yeah. They but always that, You know, that's what I, I, I wear red, uh, let's say, uh, five out of seven days of the week. And then the other day would be a white or a black if I'm wearing a red coat or it's something. It's extraordinary. People yeah. actually yeah. know you as the mayor, and they oh. say that. On well, the street. Well, I got a I got an email from somebody at Google. What was it? Let me see. It was it was the day after nine eleven, which must have been nine twelve. That means a week ago, or some or ten days ago. I don't. Know, what is it today? Twenty something. Whatever. I got a, an email from somebody at Google saying, "Oh, congratulations, your website." Because I mean, different website, but sure. my, your website, the mayor of the meatpacking is the second most Google website 
are you ready for this? So, you know, I mean, and, and they told me the reason why where people, you know, put down mayor of the meatpacking or mayor of meatpacking, whatever, right? I mean, I it comes you come out. Up. I come up right away, right away, because I'm I'm one of the most Google website, and I don't know why. I mean, you you would think that would Google other things. I'm done. I've done like one of my films or whatever, you know. I mean, whatever. But no, it's the mayor of the meatpacking. So I became the. So at the beginning, I didn't like it much because. I didn't want to be like a politician or anything like that. But then I, I got used to it. And I said, well, yeah, call me the mayor if you want. Oh, my goodness. So you no. are the second largest website. In yeah. Google. It's unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, that's what the Google somebody at Google said. You know, It's I, true. I, I get, Google it, and there you come. There you are. Yeah, I mean, you know, so I mean, so I, I guess uh, I'm the unofficial mayor of the meatpacking district. I mean, that, so I accepted it. You know what I mean? I accepted in the same way that I accept, you know, interviews now. I think I used to hate anything personal. I mean, interviews or whatever. I do it now because I want to have more of a platform for the projects I'm doing. And I think you know, it's I a mean, great you know, idea. you know, to expose human trafficking, yeah. to to end the embargo of Cuba. You know what I mean? To help the homeless. And like I said, if anybody, I don't take money because I used to refuse to take money. But if help. anybody, if anybody wants to work help. with me, and and, or anybody wants, for example, to to produce one of my projects, you know, I would say, okay, these are the projects I have, and we can work together. You know, so that it's unbelievable. I know. think you're just the most courageous, most oh, amazing man. You. I mean, you have 18 lives. Which most people don't, and you are so lucky to be alive, and we're so lucky. Yeah, I've been shot, I've been knifed. Yeah, been, I mean, I mean yeah, my yeah, heavens yeah. to Betsy. Yeah. And we are so lucky to but have you. But thank you, I mean, I, 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 I'm almost embarrassed here, you know, to you hear this. You should not be. You yeah. should wear a little medal of honor oh, no, no, of I, your I, kindness, your generosity, no, and your no, goodness. No, listen, I, this is, everybody chooses a life. And no matter what kind of life you have, there's going to be pain. So all you can do is choose your own pain. And my pain is doing things that I hope make a difference in the world. Like I, I always say, I fight for justice and beauty. I do not fight for money or ego. So that's Bravo. the way I live. I live my life and be it. You know what I mean? That's the way it is. Whatever. Good for you. Good oh, thank for you. you. Thank you again. I mean, I, I feel and like, oh, my God. if anybody is listening, do come yeah. and help and Look up the mayor of of the Meatpacking District. Look up Roberto Monticello and find him and give him a hand because this man deserves more applause than I could possibly do by myself. And thank you so much for being on my show. You have made a great change. You've changed people's lives. You have been so kind to me and to everybody, and you put a smile on everyone's face. And that's a really wonderful gift that you have thank you so much uh misty i mean i i i'm touched because i mean i i i see it as this is what i do not not like anything special it's a natural instinct for you but some people would find it's like going to a hospital and dealing with dead people it's very difficult to do not everybody has the energy to be able to persevere and to save as many people as you've had. Yeah. So it is Thank you. Thank really, you. really wonderful. Yeah. And I hate to terminate the show, but I always say peace, preserve one another's kindness, remember peace, and don't ever forget, lead us not into temptation. We can find it ourselves. 
God bless and have a wonderful day. Thank you so much. 